It is a privilege indeed of great blessing that's ours this morning, as lovely as it is, with our health being the way that God has allowed us to enjoy it at this moment, to come together in His presence and to not only fellowship one with another, but of course with the great God of heaven and His precious Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. On the occasion that we've just completed our gospel meeting, beginning last Sunday and concluding on Wednesday evening, Brother James Watkins and his wife are able to be with us for the duration of that. What a, a great sense of positiveness and a great sense of encouragement shared by all as we appreciated the truth as it was set forth and the application of that into our lives. As we've already noted today, may that in fact redound into great goodness. Even as the weeks ahead, we apply that which we learned and use it day by day to walk closer to our Heavenly Father's wishes. Indeed, today we are blessed with many of our regular number, of course, able to be with us, and for that we're appreciative. And as quite often is the case, many visitors have come our way. We're thankful for your presence, and if we could answer any questions or be of help or assistance to you, we would urge you to simply let us, let us know that. As you noticed in the reading just a few moments ago, we'll turn back the clock in just a moment to the 13th chapter of 1 Kings and learn some interesting lessons for which I've entitled it today, I Mean What I Say. By way of introduction, would it not be fair to at least consider some of the following ideas? We each, I'm sure, have a sense of trust and a good sense of feeling about those whose word seems to be their bond. That is to say, when a person gives us his or her word that they will accomplish something or do something, that we find that they follow through with that which they said they would. We each, in fact, look rather highly upon a person with that character. But as you also know, sometimes situations are found that are the opposite to that. An individual, though the person may be well-meaning and could well be well-intentioned, we often find that the promises that they make or the assurances that they give often come up short of what we would expect based on what they have said. For example... Maybe you've had a friend or associate whom you relied upon for aid or assistance on several occasions, and yet that person, though well-meaning and good-intentioned, frequently did not show up when he said he would or with the thing that she perhaps promised was not the case at all. Or maybe another example, and isn't it true that children learn this one very rapidly, when dad and mom will threaten to punish but yet do not follow through with it. They often learn that those words that are spoken are by and large empty. They know the threats are no more than that, and the whipping or the grounding or the other means that are often promised do not ultimately come to pass. That's an instance where, in fact, the words seem to have little, if any, meaning. Perhaps on this political season of the year, maybe another might well be mentioned as well. Isn't it true sometimes a politician will make promises and upon election then discover that the following through with those promises can be a little more difficult than what one originally would have expected? Those are all ideas that lead us to this question. Of which kind of character is God? Does God mean what He says? Or is it the fact that we might well discover on occasion God would be one whose words are somewhat untrustworthy, though He may well be good-intentioned? I'd invite your concerted attention with me to the 13th chapter of 1 Kings as we go back to the Old Testament era and see on one occasion how God dealt with the situation and from that to extract lessons we can use even today to empower ourselves to be better servants of the great God of heaven. With that said, we should begin with a bit of history as we revisit some of the features of that 13th chapter. 
It is a lengthy chapter, and I would invite your attention as I summarize or paraphrase some of it. On that occasion, which was about 2,950 years ago now, we remember that the nation of Israel, just prior to that, had been united in their service under the leadership of kings Solomon, David, and Saul. When the latter one had reached the conclusion of his reign, due in part to the stubbornness of his son, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern part was such that ten of the tribes seceded, and as they bound themselves together under the nation that was to be called Israel, their first king was a man named Jeroboam. Much is said about Jeroboam in the Old Testament, and quite frankly, it is not positive. In fact, he is often described as the man who made Israel to sin. And might we note, one of his first acts as king, in 1 Kings 12, verses 28 and 29, is this. He established two places of worship in the northern kingdom, one of them at Dan, the other at Bethel. In his establishment of those places, his motivation was exceedingly clear. You see, in 1 Kings 9, verse 3, God had given commandment that his name was to be positioned upon that temple erected by Solomon or under his leadership and nowhere else. The people of Israel were thus to go to Jerusalem and worship there, for that is where God's name was. However, again, Jeroboam, rather presumptuously, set forth two other places. Again, one at Dan and one at Bethel. We immediately learned that that which took place at Bethel and Dan was not in accordance to the pleasure and plan of God, and in accordance to that, as chapter 13 opens, God dispatched a prophet. This was a young prophet who had grown up in Judah, but God dispatched him to go to that place of Bethel and to cry against the altar that was there. It happened to be the case Jeroboam was there on the occasion when the young prophet arrived, and Jeroboam listened intently to all that the young prophet had to say as he decried the events taking place there. And as he expressly said that, the bones of the prophets and priests shall be burned on this altar. Perhaps it is not a shock at all to us to appreciate that Jeroboam was not at all pleased by what he heard. He had, in fact, set up those places. It was by his authority. And yet here was a man who was not only downplaying them, but was, in fact, condemning them. Jeroboam thus stretched forth his hand against this young prophet, and when he did, God struck his hand leprous, and he was unable to draw it in again. That man, Jeroboam, then pleaded, asked that prophet, pray to God on my behalf that my hand be restored. And God, in fact, heard that prayer and did restore the hand of Jeroboam to its former position and to its former nature. At that point, being overwhelmed by the thing that had occurred to him, Jeroboam then invited that young prophet to come into his house and to refresh himself. In verses 8 and 9 of 1 Kings 13, the young prophet responded, if thou should give me half thine house, I will not come into thee. Neither will I eat bread, neither will I drink water. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord that, in fact, I must not eat bread, drink water, nor return again by the same way that I came. As that statement was made by the young prophet, notice that God had delivered to him and revealed to him a set of commandments. Following that set of events, the young prophet then proceeded on his way. However, that old prophet, there was an old prophet in Bethel, and he had two sons, and they happened to be present when they heard the young prophet speak against the altar 
And they witnessed what had happened to Jeroboam's hand. When they told their father of what they had heard and seen, he was anxious to, in fact, gain attention of that young prophet. And hence, he had a donkey saddled and he proceeded to ride after the young prophet. When he caught up with him, the young prophet sitting under an oak, that old man, the older gentleman, in fact, entered into kind conversation with him. And on that occasion, he said, Come into my house and eat bread. And the young prophet replied to him the same thing he had spoken to Jeroboam about God's commandments to him, that I am neither to eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way that I came. However, in verse 18, that old man had something more to say. And might I direct your attention to it? The old man, in essence, made the following statement. I too am a prophet. And an angel of the Lord has spoken to me and ordered me or told me to bring thee again into my house that thou mayest eat bread. And then the verse closes with five little words. But he lied unto him. That older prophet, though making the statement about the angel having spoken to him and given commandment that he was to return and thus eat bread in his house, but it says he lied the young prophet believed what the old prophet had said. He went back into the house and proceeded to eat bread and partake of a meal in that place despite the warning of God. And in fact, in the words that followed, God appeared in fact through the nature of the old prophet and condemned the young prophet for what he had done. And in fact, God's promise was this, Thou shalt not see again the sepulcher of thy fathers. He would not be buried in the place of his homeland. We might wonder then, how did the scene finish? Quickly we notice that as the younger prophet finished his meal and went on his way, we do see in fact that a lion met him, and that was the verse that was read a few moments ago. The lion killed him. In fact, interesting though, the lion did not bother either the donkey on which he was riding, nor did he in fact tear the body of the man. He simply killed him. Ultimately, that older prophet learned of the corpse, the, the carcass, if you will, of the young prophet lying as it was beside the roadway. He himself went and got it, brought it back to Bethel, and had it buried. And his own commandments to his sons were these, Bury me next to him. Put my bones next to the young prophet, for what he said will come to pass. That synopsis, or that overview of 1 Kings 13 perhaps leads us to ask, what lessons might there be in that in regard for you and me today? Again, under the title, I mean what I say. I'd submit there are four lessons that you and I might extract, and would you consider with me the first one? Might it well be noted that God's commands are both clear and understandable. It was not the case that the young prophet was confused about what God had told him. Remember, on two occasions, he had quoted exactly the commands that God had given. First to Jeroboam and second to the older prophet. He exactly knew what it was that God had affirmed. And hasn't it ever been so? Whether one considers the earlier days of the Old Testament or even our Christian era today, the commands of God are clear, are they not? Consider some passages that help us appreciate that point. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, we will remember that interesting saga and scene when Moses himself, speaking for the greatness of God, said, All the things that I command thee this day, thou shalt observe to do them. Might it be noted, Israel could not reasonably be expected to do that which they never understood. 
they knew what God's commands were. They had been revealed through Moses and Aaron and the others to them, and they were of understandable character. Later, we see in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, that very powerful text in which Ezra the priest and as well as the scribes with him stood before the people and said, So they read in the book of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. The intent was to understand it so that application could be made. That minor prophet known as Habakkuk cried forth in Habakkuk 2 verse 2, Write the vision, God said, make it plain that those who read it may run. What it was that Habakkuk was to reveal was to be sufficiently straightforward and plain that those who would read that would be sufficiently overcome with understanding and appreciation that they would proceed to run in direct response to it, accomplishing the ends that Habakkuk had revealed. As we turn the page from Old to New Testament and ask about the life of our Savior, in John 8, 32, Jesus emphatically said to that group of Jews with whom He was speaking on that occasion, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is still a remarkable feature, in fact, that though God is omnipotent and as great as He is, He has chosen to communicate with you and me, the human family, on terms and tones understandable to us. Ye shall know the truth, our Savior declared. These thoughts recognize in our mind perhaps another thought and idea. There have been from time to time features in the mind of some of the disposition as follows, namely, that it takes a special and direct measure of operation on the part of the Holy Spirit for you and me to understand the Bible. Namely that, apart from that, I nor you can understand it. It would be difficult to concoct anything further from the truth. How is, does that in fact reflect upon the God of heaven to claim that he wrote a book intended for us and yet we cannot understand it? Well, certainly that speaks volumes about his inability to do that which he desired to do if that were the case. Rather, God gave us his word and Paul declared in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 in great commendation to the Thessalonian brethren, he in fact said, When you receive the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. The Thessalonians heard the word of God, put into practice that which they had heard, and there's no statement at all about a direct measure of operation of the Holy Spirit. We can be ever thankful for what the Holy Spirit has done. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we learn the greatness of His revelation. He, in fact, is described in these words and in this way. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit thus superintended the authoring and the writing of the Holy Bible. As these 66 books were set forth, all 1,189 chapters, all 31,102 verses, they are that which the Holy Spirit intended. And He does not today need anyone, including Himself, to especially act in such a way to aid men in its understanding. God wrote it by way of the Holy Spirit to be understandable to us as it is. Our attention then, just like we see in the nature of this young prophet, we too can know the will of God. It is there for our appreciation. 
I've listed on the screen some thoughts that might put before our minds one specific thought, namely the remission of sins. What does the Bible say about that? Is it such that you and I need to secure the services of an individual who will approach God on our behalf and thus produce the forgiveness or remission of our sins? Absolutely not. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And are not each of us as Christians described as priests unto God, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9? In essence, you and I, by the nature of the shed blood of Christ Jesus, are able to have our sins forgiven and to enjoy fellowship with God without the intermediate necessity and services of those who might be called by various and sundry human names or titles. Is it not interesting that we read in 1 John 1 verse 7, the power of the blood of Christ. He says, if you walk in the light as He is in the light, ye have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Oh, that occasion when in fact outside Jerusalem, we remember that the nails were driven into the feet and hands of our Savior and blood poured forth from His side, His head, His back. And it was the nature of that shed blood that washes our sins away. As we see this first lesson, though, might there be yet another? We notice that the young prophet knew the commands of God. He was able to quote them twice. But that leads us to the next point. Knowing God's commands alone are not enough to please Him. One must put into practice that which He has revealed. One must, in fact, apply to one's life that which God has set forth. In fact, do we not see that clearly exemplified in the life of the young prophet? He knew what God had said, but yet when he disobeyed, when he accepted as true the word of the older prophet, he then proceeded to come into the displeasure and disfavor of the very God of heaven. Let's amplify that point just a bit more if we may. What is it today that thus is pleasing in the sight of God? Is it a thorough and complete knowledge of the Bible? I submit to you that you and I could quote exactly the whole entire Bible, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and yet if we fail to apply it and to put into practice that which is found therein, we will be no more pleasing to God than if we knew very little of it. God respects the obedience to His will. In Galatians 5 verse 6, in the heart of the New Testament, to those churches in Galatia, Paul very directly said, that that which God finds desirable, pleasing, and favorable is faith which worketh by love. Faith is vital. It's essential. It's valuable. And without it, there can be no salvation indeed. Hebrews 11 verse 6 reminds us, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So indeed, faith is essential. But did we not read that faith which worketh by love in the heart of those in Galatia and in the heart of you and me today is still that which God, in fact, has the greatest of respect for. In addition to that application, perhaps your mind has already raised to that second chapter of James. How often did James, in fact, bring before his readers the very thoughts before us at this time? In fact, verse 17 reads, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And then in explanation we read in verse 18, So then a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. 
faith, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. It is vain. It is lifeless. It does not produce the end which it in fact ought. But faith which worketh by love is that which is of great power and means. May we thus not be like the young prophet in that sense, that we know the will of God but fail for one reason or another to put it into practice. Other passages that challenge our thoughts on that point, uttered by our Savior Himself near the close of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, our Savior made this statement. In His statement, I might briefly note, it is such a penetrating and profound one. When our Savior Himself said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I say unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. May we revisit verse 21 for a moment. He made statement that not, not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall be pleasing and acceptable. But what, Jesus? Those that do the will of my Father. It is a sad and hypocritical tragedy, isn't it, when someone will make statement about allegiance to the Word of God and yet fail to apply that which has been stated and revealed in that very same Word. In verses 24 to 29 of that chapter, Matthew chapter 7, we also read that Jesus gave a beautiful illustration about on the one hand a foolish man who built his house on the sand, the other was a wise man who founded his house on a rock and the Lord noted that the fact the man was wise and the other was foolish was described in these words. The one who built his house on the sand was like the person who hears but does not do. The person who in fact was wise and founded his house on a rock was like the one who not only heard but did. We might ask in which camp we are as individuals. Do you and I thus seek to apply unfailingly the Word of God? If we are, we in fact have learned a valuable lesson from the young prophet. For he failed on that point, didn't he? Though he knew the will of God, he allowed another to distract his attention and believe that which wasn't the case. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. To note the closing verse of Genesis 6. Isn't that a masterful compliment to the man called Noah? Almost verbatim, the same thing occurs in Exodus 40:16. Thus did Moses, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. May you and I be similarly described. And doesn't that then lead us to the third of our lessons this morning? Can we not also see in great tragedy that there are those who speak religious falsehood? It is a shame that one need address that point, isn't it? But may we notice, isn't that what happened to the young prophet? Here was an old prophet, indeed a person who ought to have known better. A person who ought to have enough respect for the souls of men and the word of God to never presume to speak where God has not spoken. And yet again, those five words that close 1 Kings 13, 18 are these, But he lied unto him. Is it still the case that you and I suffer by observing that there are those that speak religious falsehoods today? Those who speak things that in fact are not in harmony with the Word of God? In fact, the New Testament affirms to us that that is the case. Consider in fact some of the following passages. In 2 Peter 2, 
at the outset of that noble chapter in the heart of the book of 2 Peter, we remember that Peter begins with these words. The very first word of the chapter is the word but. But even as there were false prophets among the people, there shall also be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of the inspired apostle Peter. Or listen to some other passages where similar texts to those also occur. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 15, that we should ever be on guard for false teachers and false prophets shall be as ravening wolves described ultimately by their fruits in Matthew 7, verse 20. In the days of the, Old Pro of the Old Testament, wasn't it true that Jeremiah was told the following? Jeremiah 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. There are those, you see, who will speak false teaching. Perhaps they do so in great earnestness and sincerity, but that doesn't excuse the fact that it's not in harmony with the will of God. He lied unto him. Wouldn't it be sad to stand before the presence of the august God of heaven and give answer for having believed a lie? To give answer for having meandered through the sojourn of this life and having done so under the jurisdiction of having believed a lie. We read in other places in both Old and New Testament of the terribleness and how sad that is when all the while we have the Word of God at our disposal. What was it the inspired apostle told his young protege in the faith, Timothy? 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 2. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Why, Paul? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own selves shall they heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Does a fable qualify as the Word of God? Does it substitute for it? Is it a replacement? Of course not. And yet when you and I turn our ears from truth to that which is a fable and proceed to live our lives in accordance with it, we have fared no better than the young prophet of 1 Kings 13. You see, he believed the lie that the old prophet had told him. We certainly might pause to ask, the Bible doesn't tell us why the old prophet lied to him. Was it out of jealousy? Was it because that God chose to dispatch a prophet from a distant place to come and rebuke rather than God choosing him? We do not know. Was it in jealousy? Was it in envy? Was it because that he simply desired to have the preeminence over this younger prophet? We do not know. And it does not matter. The young prophet chose to disobey the God of heaven. Might we thus also make one final point on this third lesson? The old prophet had said that it was an angel that gave him commandment to speak that which he spoke. Today, does any angel have any right to countermand the revelation of the New Testament? He does not. Paul, in fact, in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, addressed the Galatian brethren with that very idea. He said, But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Not even the angels in heaven can alter or modify or change the gospel of Christ Jesus. And you and I are amenable to that, and it shall be so until the very close of time when our Savior shall return. It is the last testament of Him, isn't it? No wonder Paul then affirmed in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The essentiality of the one faith, exhibited by virtue of one God, Lord, and Christ Jesus, seen so clearly in the fact of one baptism and the greatness of all the things in that one hope. As challenging as these thoughts may well be to us, it brings us to the fourth point in our lesson this morning, and the one that brings us back to the title of it, in fact. It was at the bottom of that previous sheet. We had entitled the lesson, I Mean What I Say. We've now arrived at that point of describing the character of the great God of heaven. Did he mean what he said? With regard to that young prophet, might we again at least replay briefly some of the features of what had occurred? The young prophet on two occasions had quoted the nature of God's commandments, and yet when this old prophet, no doubt one whom the younger prophet respected, when that young prophet gave that respect unto the lie that he told, he then disobeyed God. Did God overlook that disobedience in the effect of the previous honorable character of the young prophet? Was it the case that God followed through with the matter of his disobedience by punishing, if you will, this younger prophet? And as we noted earlier, it is the latter situation, isn't it? No sooner it would seem than the young prophet had concluded his meal and began on his way homeward. A lion met him and took his life. On that occasion, might we notice, does that seem as though God then lived to His Word, that He punished the disobedience, and that in fact He was not willing to overlook? Many passages help us appreciate the thoroughness of the point of view that we must ever keep in mind with regard to our Heavenly Father. As we meander through the nature of our life, ever looking forward to the glorious home in heaven waiting beyond, we must always remember, though, that that's a prepared place for those that are prepared to accept and enter therein. There indeed shall be a day of judgment. Let us notice those sobering words of Paul as he preached in Athens in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He said, But the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. There will be a day of judgment. In Hebrews 9, 27 we read, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. There shall be an occasion of reckoning, a time when all of us shall stand before God and give an answer for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. What will be the verdict on that occasion? Will God overlook the matters and sins of my life? pretending as if they had never existed, we can rest assured they will not be overlooked. The only thing that can be done to sin is forgive it. One can't pretend it doesn't exist. Unless those sins have been forgiven by the efficacious nature of the blood of Christ, I will stand condemned, and so will anyone else. In fact, do we not read in addition to the nature of that judgment? So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans fourteen twelve. And didn't Paul say to that church in Corinth, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. These thoughts challenge us each to appreciate. There will be a judgment. What will be declared that day? When you and I have occasion to perhaps be a witness before a judge at a court of law in our land, that judge has various options open to him. 
may we notice that the standard that our Savior shall employ is the one that you and I have already noted is clear and understandable. And isn't that a blessing? In John 12, verse 48, we read this. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. Isn't it amazing that in essence, you and I will face a final exam on one occasion, but we already have the entire test before us. We know what's going to be on it. We must simply open and diligently apply that which has been revealed therein, and we'll be entirely ready for that great and noble final exam. Perhaps in fairness, we could also say that as one contemplates that great judgment and the thoughts to be seen in it, the Bible closes perhaps one last time by bringing that to our attention. In Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, there's a scene sometimes called the great white throne judgment, when in fact we notice the books will be opened and everyone will be judged by the things of his life in comparison to what's in those books. The greatness seen in verse 15 is this. Those whose name is not in the book of life will be cast into an eternal lake of fire and brimstone. And those are the words of the Savior in Revelation 20:15. As you and I contemplate then, does God mean what He says? Is there a place called hell? He said there is. We would do well to not only believe it, but live in such a way to forever appreciate the desire not to enter it. Is there a place called heaven? He said there is. In Revelation 21, we're given a description of it. Certainly, we are not to believe that the figurative language employed there describes it, but John said it's a place with, it, if you will, the streets are gold. A place, in fact, where all the foundations of the city are the most precious stones that one can imagine. A place where there's no need for a temple because Christ and God are there. A place where there's no need for either the sun or the moon because all the light that's ever needed is from the glorious presence of God and His Son. That's the kind of place we each like to go, no doubt. But might we notice, God does mean what He says. To enter a place like that requires that we not only know the will of God, but that we apply it. Many a song has been written in the decades that are currently now and in the past about the glorious place known as heaven and that it seems as though virtually everyone is going to be welcomed therein. But the fact is the New Testament doesn't describe it that way. Might we again, as we come near the close of our lesson, recollect Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. May we be one of the few. May we strive not to tread that wide road that leads to destruction, to ruin, to doom, and to misery, but to that narrow way that leads unto the glorious greatness of the very place where the throne of God is. In summary to the lesson today, as we've revisited the scene of the young prophet of 1 Kings 13, we've learned four rather valiant lessons. The first of which was that God's Word is clear and understandable, intended by us to be applied, which leads us to the second point that we must apply it if we are to be as pleasing before God as we ought to be. Thirdly, that as we consider the thrust of what that application involves, we must ever understand, as we noted in the last two, that there are those who speak religious falsehood. We must, of course, judge the things that we do based on the Word of God, not what someone may say. 
These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily with those things were so. Acts 17 verse 11. And finally, the recognition that God does mean what He says. That not only means that the punishment will await those who have not obeyed His will, it also describes the great blessings for those who did. As we conclude the lesson, thinking, of course, about where each of us stand before God. What is my disposition? What is yours? If you're not a Christian today, the opportunity will be extended shortly. Jesus left the greatness of heaven to pay the way that you and I might have our sins washed away and forgiven. And the plan that accomplishes that, he described in these words. John 8, verse 24, Except ye believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. We must believe that Christ is the Son of God and believe the gospel. He also, though, said, as Peter did on Pentecost, repent. There's a necessity of a change in mind where we do not desire to live in sin any longer, but by change of mind to live in a pleasing way, harmonizing with the will of God. We notice that we must confess Him for we read in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that confession is made unto salvation. Finally, we notice the necessity to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. That point is a part of all ten cases of conversion in the book of Acts. It's a part of the commandments that we read Jesus Himself said. For He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. When we rise from that watery grave of baptism, the sins are gone. They have been washed away. They are no more. Notice that that's what Paul was told too in Acts twenty-two sixteen: Arise and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Today, if you have never been baptized, never had your sins washed away, we'd be honored to aid you in that. If you have been baptized, but your life following that has not been in harmony with the will of God, we did urge you to come forward and ask for the prayers of brethren that we could pray, just as was happened in Acts 8, verses 20 and following, that God would forgive those sins from you upon your repentance and your confession. Today, if any of that would be the need of your life, we'd urge you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.